part of the question is whether or not this has the ability to get these voters who are infrequent voters, renters, young people, independent voters, to get out and vote in November. And potentially, if it does, then it has the opportunity to shape the races from those legislative races, congressional races, and so on. Welcome back, everyone, to Cabot Talks. This is Brian Cavatek, former president of Consumer Attorneys of California, L.A. County Bar, all around interested in political issues. And sometimes my brother thinks that I'm left of center. Sometimes, sometimes I think he's right. That left of center anymore. Joined, of course, with my brother, John. I'm John Cavatek. I am the California State Director of the National Federation of Independent Business. I also serve as president of Cavatek Strategies, a political strategy firm in Sacramento. I like to think I am the taller, maybe better looking and a little right-minded brother of the two Cavateks. All right. So once again, our guest is Paul Mitchell. He's joining us again. We're happy to have you here, Paul, with us today to talk a little bit about politics. We're, we're recording this in Pretty much the early part of October of 2022. So we've got an election coming up in you know roughly 30 days or so from now, from the day we're recording this. And John, you want to introduce Paul again? Yeah, absolutely. So excited to have our returning guest, Paul Mitchell, with us. We're proud to have him back as a regular guest here with Cabot Talks. Just as a reminder, Paul is a data consultant based in Sacramento. He's the founder of Redistricting Partners and the vice president of Political Data, Inc. For more than two decades, Paul served as a political expert, helping to steer the course of more responsible and fair elections and redistricting processes for more than 75 states and cities and school boards. He's advised the state of New York, cities of L.A., Long Beach, Oakland, Berkeley, Mesa, Arizona. The list goes on with their independent redistricting commissions. He's focused on building community engagement, working on state and national elections, voting issues to make sure there's a a fairer process, more effective process, and that the voice of the people and voters are heard and that they can make more informed decisions. He's been all all over the media, CNN, PBS, multiple media outlets, and also Cavatox. He did his undergrad at Orange Coast College, American University, has a master's in public policy from USC, fight on, fight on, go Trojans. This is something Brian and I do have in common with you, Paul, and each other, um, as well as the fact, ladies and gentlemen, that we do hail from the same neighborhood of Glendale Montrose. So welcome back, Paul Mitchell. Thank you very much. Great introduction. Thanks for having me. No, no problem, Paul. I'm happy to have you. And a little good news is I think we've now climbed up to double digits for listeners. So we're very proud of the fact that <laughs> we may be in 10, 11, 12, somewhere in that range. So we got an election coming up, and I just want to kick it off by talking about something that's sort of outside the ambit of the election, which is uh, Gavin Newsom. Is he or isn't he? What are the general thoughts about the future? Because I think one thing we can all agree on in this show is that Gavin is going to have a cakewalk into re-election. But what's beyond that? What do you see? What's the appetite out there? And, you know, I personally have a working theory, which is I don't think anyone from California can right now in this climate be elected president of the United States. But uh, Gavin may disagree with me. Well, if you want my thoughts, you know, a lot of this is sparked by what he's been doing the last several months. I was in D.C. and everybody had run into was like, oh, Paul, hey, tell me, like, what's the real story of what's happening with Newsom? Like, is he running for president? And the media, obviously, every time he puts up an ad in Florida or Texas or attacks DeSantis or 
or, you know, does any of that kind of stuff, they all kind of gravitate towards this idea that like, aha, look, we caught him. He's running for president. But the reality is that let's say, Brian, that you had your political consultant and your political consultant said, Brian, the best thing you can do for your image right now is to go find a Republican in power and go punch him in the nose and show a fight, a backbone, an interest in taking the fight to the Republicans that a lot of other Democrats have been shy to do. Okay, Brian, well, great. You know your job is to go out and go punch a Republican in power and make a name for yourself on that. Who are you going to punch? I mean, who's the Republican in power in California? You have to kind of go outside of the state to try to find somebody who can create that opportunity for you to send the message to voters that I, unlike a lot of other Democrats, I'm really willing to engage in this fight and I'm willing to push back against Republicans. I'm willing to stand up for something. And so that gives you these ads in Texas and New York and billboards. And the other issue is that bang for the buck. If I said, Brian, you're running for governor, I'll give you $500,000. Do you want to spend it on lawn signs in the Central Valley or digital ads that nobody's going to really care about in the Bay Area? Or do you want to spend it on something that is going to get you front page coverage in every newspaper in the state and the country and get you huge viral buzz by spending that money on a couple digital you know, or TV buys in another state? Dollar good, for dollar, it's the best expenditure he's made. Yeah, all good points, Paul. But 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 the reality is, why bother at all? I mean, the guy has 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 an easy reelect. You're only doing it if there's some master plan out there for the future. I mean, otherwise, you're just spending money for the sake of spending money. Well, he's also got money that he can only spend on politics, right? It's not like it's his own money; it's campaign money. His campaign money he can only legally spend to run for office. If he leaves the governor's office and he's got $10 million in the bank, what can he spend that on? He can't legally spend it on anything. He can return it to donors. He can transfer it into another campaign committee, or he can spend it on issues. And so, you know, I think that politicians, and rightly so for kind of their future endeavors, they they need to kind of keep moving forward. And so, yeah, I think that spending this money continuing to build a national brand, continuing to strengthen his brand in California are all things that can be helpful to him as he's running the state for the next four years after he wins his second term. It can help him not seem like a lame duck as soon as his next term begins. It allows him to capture the media attention, stay on the positive side of Democrats in the state. It's There's all upsides to that. You know, I, I get it and I understand that. And that's all valid. But let me just change. Let me pivot slightly and just say, what's next for Gavin then? What is it? What, where do you go after being governor of the state of California? Well, he is kind of boxed in a little bit. You know, Kamala Harris is vice president and I, I California yeah. has the same consultants he does. And I don't believe that he can go ahead and start running against the current president. If the current president says, say, in January, February, that he's not running for re-election, I don't think he can run against Kamala Harris. For that matter, neither can Pete Buttigieg. Pete Buttigieg can't stay as, you know, in the administration, be running against the vice president. So he has a little bit of the same issue. If Kamala doesn't run, then sure. Then Gavin could take a stab at it. If Kamala doesn't run is about as likely as my brother never telling another bad joke, in my opinion. (laughs) 
or having an opportunity to speak on this podcast. Oh, oh. but keep you going. Know, sometimes, John, people that speak up, speak up for themselves. <laughs> and some people who speak up too much get seated at the back of the class, but keep going. I think Kamala is extremely likely to run. I think that we'll see what happens after this election cycle. It would be kind of political malpractice for folks looking towards the next presidential primary to be getting out in front of this general election. Nobody wants to take the blame for distracting voters from the messages that people think they need to be focusing on this election, which for Democrats is as much focus as possible on abortion and maybe a lot of focus on what Trump's doing. And Paul, to that point, I was, uh, Brian asked, you know, Gavin, is he or isn't he? Is, it, Trump pretty much is he or isn't he? He's definitely in. What's your thoughts there? Oh, Trump's definitely in. I'm still kind of surprised that he didn't announce prior to or hasn't announced prior to the these midterm elections. Mm -hmm. But I think everything is headed towards him running. I'm sure he has a plan because, as you know, he's a very stable genius. Absolutely. Well, John, you were speaking, so I I don't want to I don't want to be accused of, you know, stepping on you again. So did you want to ask some questions, John, and, and try to ask intelligent ones? Brian, you're a gentleman and a scholar, or at least a scholar. The elephant in the room, or Democrat, donkey in the room, Paul, let me ask you a second to, is Gavin, or isn't Gavin, upcoming elections. As Brian said at the time of this podcast, it is early to mid-October of 2022. We got an election in about three weeks. Paul, let me ask you this, before we get down to races or anything like that, we talked last time with you about some of the issues that really you think are pivotal to voters. It was a few months ago. Since then, Any issues that have changed, any issues that have stayed the same since our last discussion? What are those issues now that are going to drive voters on November 8th? Well, I think that there's different issues based on different segments of the electorate. I mean, the top issues overall are going to be, you know, the economy, crime, abortion, the environment. But then that's going to differ based on subgroups. So for the Republican side and Republican-leaning independents, more inflation, crime, maybe immigration, those who are on the left side of the spectrum, left-leaning independents and and Democrats, it's going to be more abortion in the environment. What's weird is in the, in the polling, environment's a really high-ranking top issue for Democrats, but you don't see a lot of campaigns focusing on that issue as much. Now, then also, aside from those demographic groups and what they're focused on going into the polls, regions of the state have different priorities as well. So, you know, for a a coastal or LA area, you might see more focus on those more progressive issues. But even the Democrats in the Central Valley are going to be more focused on the economy and gas prices and food prices, maybe than Democrats in Santa Monica or or even like some of the independents in Orange County might not be as focused on those issues as they are maybe on abortion, some of the social issues. So those are the top ranking issues. As we talked about before, in politics, especially at this level, with when you're looking at the broad scope of control of the House rather than just looking at one race, most of the fight really is where on the playing field are we going to have this fight? If you're having this fight on the five-yard line of Republicans, which is economy, inflation, gas prices, Biden, then Republicans just have a real easy time of like getting over the line and this environment with a midterm election should be that kind of environment. If we're playing on the five-yard line of the Democrats and it's 
Some doctor just got arrested in Texas for providing abortion services to a 17-year-old that was raped by her stepfather. And, and Trump is coming out saying that he wants to run for president and that he's going to personally burn the Constitution. Then Democrats are on their five-yard line. It would be hard for them not to win, even though it's a midterm election. So that question of like, what are we going to be talking about over the next 30 days is like really the question. It's the thing that's going to determine who controls the house for the next two years. Well, can I ask you this? We talked last time about, I asked kind of about the, the shift, at least from more blue voters in California, obviously many, many more of those to a more purple, almost a burple I use that new word, Brian. You can, that's not a dad joke. No, I'm just so proud of you for asking questions. (laughs) Thank you so much. But let me ask you, Paul, I mean, crime and homelessness are something that Democrats, Republicans, people on all sides are feeling the impact of. I feel more than ever before. I feel that is true. And we're seeing that's true with numbers. But let me ask you this. Are you, you think on election day, more of these more, maybe darker blue voters are going to at least shift a little bit more towards the middle, towards more pro-business moderate Democrats, more pro-business moderate, you know, more pro-public safety moderate uh, views and positions on things? Well, it really depends. I mean, our polarization in the in the country might make it harder for those kind of things to happen because you might say, oh, I'm not really happy with Democrats' views on homelessness. But the other guy, that Republican, he's like horrible and wants to, mm-hmm. you know, ban abortion and he wants to get rid of gay marriage and he wants to do all these horrible things. You know, Madrid, Mike Madrid, who you guys, I'm sure, know. Had him on recently. uh, So he talks a lot about how the polarization in in our partisanship is different now. It used to be like, I'm a polarized Democrat because I believe in what Democrats believe in. And then, you know... Somebody else might be a polarized Republican because they believe in what Republicans believe in. They want to like dress like George Bush and they want to like talk like Karl Rove and they want to like be like Donald Rumsfeld. And that it was this almost positive polarization where people are drawn to their to their parties because they believe so strongly in their parties. Well, what Madrid's been talking about and I think makes a lot of sense is that our polarization now is the opposite. It's like a negative polarization. It's that I'm against what those Republicans are for. And the Republicans are like, I'm against what the Democrats are for. And the Democrats are parodying everything that, or are making fun of everything that, you know, all the crazy Republicans are saying and, and basically creating an environment where every Republican gets painted by the most wacky right-wing Republican brush. And Republicans are doing the same thing. Like I have a very, a very good friend in Glendale, that basically I went to one of my CV reunions and he's like, so like, who do you know in Antifa? I was like, I don't know anybody in Antifa. What are you talking about? Well, Democrats are all basically Antifa. I'm like, you're crazy. Like, there's no such thing. Like, I don't know anybody who's Antifa. That's nuts. His polarization wasn't like so much anymore. I love Republicans. His polarization is those Democrats are effing crazy. I'm against them. And so when in that that's the environment, if people are going to the polls and they're voting against the other party, more so than they're voting for their own party or their own issues, it removes a lot of that ability to have those more nuanced shifts or changes in creating more of a moderate middle. And so, no, I don't think that somebody who's like going to vote against 
the Republicans because of abortion is going to go, well, you know, but I guess I don't like the homeless either. And maybe I'll vote Republican. And I'm hoping that some of my Glendale uh, alum and friends don't think that I'm going to QAnon clam bakes every other week either. So exactly, because I feel the same way you do. Trust me. Let's sort of talk about the constitutional officers that are, you know, up for re-elect all of them. And it looks to me right now to be a snoozer. I mean, I, I don't know that there's even much we could we could talk about there. I guess the insurance commissioner is somewhat interesting. The treasurer is somewhat interesting. But, you know, in my humble opinion, what I see happening is just being a Democratic steamroll. And, and I can pretty much predict what's going to happen on each one of these races. Any surprises in there? Anything you think that's going to, you know? The only thing that everybody keeps looking at is the controller's race, Malia Cohen and Chen, and the possibility that Republicans would be able to pick up a seat there. Now, again, there's some people who kind of think, well, okay, this is a office and most people don't really know what it does. It sounds kind of fiscal. There is this kind of racially polarized voting around some of these fiscal offices where a lot of voters will vote for Asians more for offices like treasurer and controller and kind of those fiscal jobs. That's been seen in in California quite a bit. So, you know, is there an opportunity for Republicans to win in that controller's race? Probably not. I mean, the ceiling for Republicans statewide in terms that should be around 38, 39% that a Republican can get depending on turnout. And so maybe, you know, the Republican does a little better, gets close, but I don't think that Republicans are going to win a, a statewide race. And we think about it, the last two people who have won statewide races as Republicans, one is Poisoner, who's no longer a Republican. Right. And the other is Schwarzenegger, who is couldn't get elected to anything in the Republican Party right now. Right. So the Republican Party as it is today is not a statewide party in the sense of being able to move the needle on statewide offices, on statewide ballot measures. It's more of a regional party. It has the ability to elect people in certain parts of the state. And then it also does allow for people to get elected more in local government where you don't have partisan labels, but where Republicans can still get elected. I mean, we saw that with our county supervisor in Glendale, Antonovich, right? Antonovich was always elected in our area and and it wasn't until he decided to run as a, in a partisan primary for a state senate that he got walloped because he had an r next to his name but well he, he also was red, he was also running against anthony portentino who had been running for that office for i think six years yeah he got I mean, his, you know but yeah but i get it i get what you're saying is that on local politics it may make a difference it would have been interesting if portentino tried to run against him for county supervisor four years early he would have lost but when you put the partisan label. Yeah. So let's pivot. Unless, John, you have some questions about the constitutional offices. I don't want to be accused. of. No, you know, no, it's it's going to be an interesting one. I think it, it very well could be another blue sweep. But I think Lonnie Chen does have a window to crawl through here. I think that's interesting. You raised that, Paul. I think, you know, we've seen with Betty Yee and John Chung and others in those positions that that's a very distinct possibility of how voters may go. Nope. Back to you, Brian. And I, I just disagree. I mean, I get what you're saying, John. So I, I don't, you're not a hard she's going to win, but I just don't think she has any chance. And I don't think it's anything about her character or quality. I just think it's going to be a sweep. And I think that's what people are going to do. I mean, look at Ricardo Lara. Yeah. In my humble opinion, he's one of the worst, if not the worst insurance commissioner we've ever had in California. And who he was running against in the primaries would have been somebody who was probably competent. But I think Ricardo will get reelected. And I, in fact, I'd be stunned. In fact, I'll put lunch 
on the fact that I think he gets reelected. I just have one word for you, Brian. Quackenbush. <laughs> I, I was involved in that back in those days because I was heavily involved in Northridge earthquake cases. Oh, I thought and you were I, saying you were involved in recreational basketball leagues. And we were we were trying to figure out why it was these insurance companies were getting away with what they were doing to people in the Northridge earthquake. And then, you know, we found out and, and we found out what the price of getting a clear bill of health from the Department of Insurance was. I think it was like two hundred thousand dollars. And then Quackenbush fled to Hawaii after he left office because apparently he thought that there was no extradition treaty with the Republic of Hawaii. But now he is the very best park ranger Florida has ever had on its soil. Well, good for him. So (laughs) let's pivot to talk about the propositions. Some pretty interesting ones there. I don't know if we want to spend too much time on Proposition 1, which is the reproductive freedom proposition, you know, the the abortion issue. I would, again, be shocked if if that went down in flames. No, no, no. That one's going to win with, like, it's a question of how much, really. And it's also a question of whether or not this creates a mold nationally for other states to follow, where you see more states doing this kind of stuff, you know, trying to create protections at the statewide level. So that it's going to definitely be fun to watch that one. And Paul, do you think there's enough pro-choice Republicans out there that are going to support this? This is going to go, this is going to get enough Democrat votes to, to succeed, but there's a lot of Republicans out there that are not necessarily far right red. Do you think this will gather up a number of those from the right? At least the yeah, center I mean, right, slightly center fine with. It's going to get well over just kind of Democratic and independent numbers. It's going to get a lot of a lot of Republican numbers as well. I think that that I think that's pretty clear that that ballot measure is going to win by big margins. Mm-hmm. Paul, is it going to bring people out to vote on Election Day? I mean, I think that's part of the part of the question is whether or not this has the ability to get these voters who are infrequent voters, renters, young people, independent voters to get out and vote in November and potentially to get out and vote in November in numbers that exceed what the expectation is amongst all the pollsters and people like me who spend our lives thinking about turnout. If it does, then it has the opportunity to really shape the races from, you know, those legislative races, congressional races, and so on. I think it's going to definitely be an across the board winner. The Republican numbers that I'm looking at right now in a poll that hasn't been released shows that about 35% of Republicans are leaning or confident yes on Prop 1. Yeah, I'm not surprised. Mm. I'm not surprised. I, I think a lot of Republicans in California are not doctrinal in the sense like, you know, that they might be in states like Alabama. Let's go to Prop 26 and 27. I want to talk about that. I, I My prediction, you can tell me if I'm wrong, is they both go down in flames. You want me to tell you if you're wrong? I think that definitely 27 goes down in flames. 26, probably two. What's interesting is when you look at these polls, uh, you really need to look not just at like the top line number, how, what is the favorable or what's the likely yes on it, but also what's the, the no number is actually more important. The no is almost always an underrepresentation of what will actually be the final no, because the undecideds generally break no a lot more than they break yes. The reason being that when somebody's undecided on one of these ballot measures, they're very likely to just either be confused by it or whatever. And the default when you're confused is like, I don't want to vote for this. And they just vote no. When in doubt, stay out. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think it's very likely that both of these go down. And I think that 27 goes down even stronger than 26. Hard. Yeah. 
And I think I think that's one of the reasons why 26 is going to fail is because 27 is so bad from a perception. And the, the ad campaign has been very good against anti-27. I think it, it it's going to take 26 with it. Is that consistent that, with what you're saying? Yeah, it almost like the yuck factor transfers over to the other measure. Really we, interesting issues. I mean, it's sort of the, the only one that's getting much attention. But let's go to Prop 30. I, I, I kind of skipped over 29, the dialysis, but because it seems That one like goes down too, right? Yeah, again. Is this the third, three strikes? Is it going to be a three strike rule? Yeah, it's the third time that it's been voted on. I don't think there's a three strikes rule in ballot measures. As long as they have campaign committees and consultants, they can keep coming. Right. Yeah. But Prop 30, thoughts? Explain to listeners what Prop 30 is first. It's the prop after 29, John. Yeah. <laughs> Thank so you, I mean, Brian. God, how stupid is of me. Because it's, it's a ballot measure that creates an income tax increase, puts that income tax increase towards incentives for zero emission vehicles. It's the kind of thing that you say, oh, that sounds like something that all the progressives and the governor and everybody should be behind. The Democrat Party is behind it, supportive of it. It's been put together by Lyft, I believe, was the essentially funding it. Yeah. And I... My understanding is that they'll use some of these resources to be able to get more of their drivers and vehicles on the road for, for their own business purposes. Yeah, I have a little the insight. The governors in, come out against it hard. I have a little insight into this, and that's that what Lyft does is they actually reimburse their drivers for EVs. And what they're looking for is to remove that burden from them so that the state will actually be reimbursing the drivers for EVs. Yeah. And so, you know, it's a moneymaker for them. It's going to be a close one. I don't really know how it's going to break. I think that the governor's ads early coming out on that measure, those seem to me to be really effective. It's kind of gotten messy. CTA is strongly against it. CTA is against it because when money comes into the state, Prop 98 guarantee for for K-12 schools requires a certain amount of that money to be broken off towards K-12 before it can be used for other purposes. This money bypasses that requirement. And so it's basically billions of dollars coming in that they're not getting any percentage of. So they're opposed to that both on this one act, but also in general, they don't want to allow other folks to think like, oh, we can just draft these bills with like carve outs to like avoid having to pay money into the K-12 bucket. So they're coming out hard against this essentially to not only kill it, but also to try to stop others from getting the fancy idea of bypassing K-12 spending when when bringing in new state revenue. Seems Yeah, I, I also of- see Prop 30, though, is, is one where it's only hitting people who make more than $2 million and voters. It's only you two guys. I mean. That's, thanks a lot. Dead silence. <laughs> just dead silence. Crickets. Crickets. <laughs> yeah. Let me just go through the states again. Nevada, Texas, Florida, New Hampshire, one of the Dakotas. Let's see, Alaska, Washington. I think there are two more states that I'm looking at. No, joking. Yeah, listening. don't look. There's and no for the franchise tax board, joking. Hey, can we shift a little bit to the referendum process? Something that used to be done here and there a little bit. It seems like that's bubbling up a little bit more and more. The bail industry rose up, and with Prop 25, voters basically worked, 
hard and they, they, the industry worked hard to make sure voters continued to keep the bail industry after something Jerry Brown signed that would have eliminated it. You've got Governor Newsom recently signing this AB 257, which would create a largely labor-driven panel to dictate wages and benefits of fast food franchise employees. You've got that industry now rising up to collect signatures to overturn that. How much is the referendum process like bubbling up more and more? Do you see that as, another, as a bigger wave coming up in the future? And is that also, secondly, is that process effective and legit? I mean, a lot of people question the legitimacy of the signature gathering. There is a whole cottage industry around signature gathering and getting these ballot measures on, whether we're talking about the dialysis measure, which like you said earlier, this yeah. is the third time that it's gone up, third time it's probably going to fail. You know, there is a whole industry built up around this work. I've actually worked in a past in a past life on getting ballot measure done, and it was crazy and kind of sketchy. And it really is not a pretty process. This idea that progressives and Hiram Johnson created about creating more direct democracy and allowing for people to push back against lobbyists and entrenched legislators has essentially created its own entrenched leadership in the business of creating these ballot measures. The referendum process has been successful in pushing back on some of the things the legislature has been has tried to do. Like you mentioned, bail, like even the health care reform back a long time ago when John Burton passed a big health care reform that would have been essentially like a statewide universal health care program that was put to a referendum and and that referendum successfully overturned what the legislature did. I, on one hand, think like this is a process that can end up being abused. It can put legitimate good policy goals into kind of like a 30-second ad, whom can spend the most money, political space, which isn't necessarily, I think, great for our governance. And so part of me is thinks that it's overdone. We should make it harder or create better ways for ballot measures to get on the ballot and, and referendums. The flip side is that I've worked in other states like redistricting is an example. You can't pass a redistricting form out of a legislature that currently has the ability to control redistricting. They don't mm-hmm. want to. Uh, the only way to do it is to go over the heads of politicians and go straight to the voters and do a ballot measure. And states that have effective ballot measure systems have the ability to wrestle away redistricting from the elected officials. And I know we're not going to dive into it here, but that whole thing that happened in L.A. with the city council members fighting, they were fighting over redistricting that in city of L.A. they actually still control, even though they have kind of a fake commission. How do you wrestle that power away from a city council like L.A. or from a state like California? You do it through ballot measures, through direct democracy. And so... I believe in direct democracy, but I don't think it's pure as the driven snow as some people might think. We're sort of running out of time here, and we I, we hear from our you know eleven or twelve listeners that they like to keep this relatively short. So let me skip and ask you quickly for your comments and thoughts about the L.A. mayoral race, which looked in the middle of the summer like it was going to be a barn burner and a lot of fun, and it doesn't look much like that anymore. What are your thoughts? Unless something dramatically changes, it looks like Karen Bass is going to be the next mayor of Los Angeles. But I want to caution, things can dramatically change. We could have some big October surprise. Don't know what that would be. We also have an actual campaign and election undergo, you know, that's that's taking place. And 
we would expect LA to be around 60% turnout, 55% turnout, which isn't a huge number and provides opportunity that might not be there in a 99% turnout environment. What I mean by that is that if Caruso's campaign, which is spending north of $10 million on just field alone, meaning door knocking, phone calling, texting, walking stuff, if they can actually identify and turn out, what happens if they turn out 300,000 extra Caruso voters? Could they flip this race and create an outcome that isn't seen in the polling because they literally work hard enough that they put in the time, money, effort to turn out voters that nobody thinks are going to vote? And so there are potentials that this race is going to be more competitive than people think. But And most voters yeah, don't. This is not a political statement as much, but most voters out there, Paul, don't really recognize that a congresswoman, it's too inside baseball for voters to say a congresswoman who represents a district where crime has gone up and, you know, poverty has gone up, homelessness is continuing to be a problem. Most voters don't really understand that as much versus a guy like Caruso, who's a change agent. Oh, that's a supporter. No, 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 no. I'm just saying, but you know, no, but I really, but you know, I really want the status quo in Los Angeles. But the reality so. is that like change agent and I, I'm <laughs> not voting for these candidates because I don't live in LA, but you can say that, but you could also say that Karen Bass came up from one of the poorest True. communities in the city. She led a group called community coalition from the ground up to bring together black and Asian and Latino residents to try to create opportunity where there wasn't, to try to build jobs, to try to create this. And Community Coalition is a you know well-known, effective, continuing nonprofit organization in, in LA that I'm sure you're aware of. And, sure. and you would believe in their mission too, even if you are a Republican, believe in the work that they're doing to try to uplift communities. And so in a way, I don't think voters would penalize an elected official for coming from an area like that, particularly when they've spent their career fighting for that community in a way that isn't, she's not part of the, like the corrupt LA political scene. She's part of this That's good point. political scene that it's kind of crazy almost that she came from being like nurse practitioner, volunteer with a community organization meeting in people's living rooms, becoming potentially mayor of Los Angeles. That's kind of amazing. I, I wonder yeah, if in, then in enough. contrast, in contrast, you've got Caruso. And again, I'm I'm right there with you, Paul. I don't live in LA. I'm not voting. I can't vote on this. But but you know, Caruso, billionaire, and people see that and they get that and they see that he's had success with his shopping malls. But you know, when it comes right down to it, I think people look at that and they contrast them. And I think that's one of the reasons why people kind of hold in their nose with him. And I know plenty of older white guys who love him, but that's a very small percentage of the of the electorate. It'll be interesting to see. I mean, will voters yeah. really go with somebody like Karen, who's been, like you said, up through the ranks, Paul, and understands the process or an outsider? And people, we will see where that is. Can we ask you a little bit before we go to our lightning round? And that kind of brings us to sure. legislative races. Paul, without getting too in the weeds, you obviously helped design a lot of these these, these districts, the re, or at least help work towards the redistricting process. What legislative races, as you're looking here, or districts do you see as pivotal as we're looking ahead at November 8th, and why? I don't think that a lot of legislative races are as interesting. The congressional races obviously will be pivotal to the state, the country, the direction the country goes in control of the of Congress. It sounds crazy, but if you took the Kern County 
North seat, the district that takes in part is Bakersfield, not Kevin McCarthy's district, but Valadeo's district. If you took the Valadeo district and the Mike Garcia district, which is like, think Magic Mountain up in Santa Clarita, that area. If you took both of those districts and put them in the D column, and there are both toss-ups. If you put them both in the D column, then mathematically, Democrats should take control of the House, period. That's how the models work out. That's the kind of how close this, this fight is. So I think those are the most important races for Democrats and Republicans to be looking at. There are some legislative races that I think are noteworthy. One of them that I think I'm proud of, and it's weird to say that I'm proud of a district when I wasn't on the commission and I wasn't drawing the districts, but I was involved, I think, in helping shape some of the commissions thinking about these lines. Mm-hmm. And West Hollywood. We all know West Hollywood. It's one of the most LGBTQ cities in the country. And West Hollywood has never elected a out gay legislator or member of Congress. And we worked really hard with the communities in the area to try to effectively get get the commission to draw a district that would allow for West Hollywood to have its central LGBTQ population then other kind of communities, either their high LGBTQ population or a lot of voters who are supportive of those issues. And it is going to elect the first LGBT out LGBT state legislator from West Hollywood. Sounds incredible and weird to say that, but that's the fact. We've had three decades of LGBT state legislators coming out of San Diego, but this will be the first time we have an LGBT elected official coming out of West Hollywood. So I think that's going to be interesting to watch. There is a lot of shakeup in who's running and what seats and and people who've stepped out of either to run for something else or uh, just simply stepped out like Adrian Nazarian, deciding not to run against Laura Friedman for that district in our old stomping grounds. But he'll be running for city council soon enough, I'm sure. And yeah, I think that other than where people live, their own particular race, those are a couple of the races I've been watching. So John mentioned a little lightning round. We've, we've done that last time you were on. We'll just throw a couple quick questions at you. Rocky Cola. Oh. Okay. <laughs> we haven't asked it's yet, gone. but good. It's gone. <laughs> it's not coming back. It's gone. I know. They're naming it something I'm else. I'm in denial. I'm in denial. For the other 10 or 11 listeners, besides my mother, our mother, who clearly knows what we're talking about, that was a, a famous sort of little cafe up in Montrose near where we all grew up. Wiki's Diner. Bill Clinton, I believe, visited when he was mm-hmm. president. Yep. Right. Yeah. All right. John, you want to go first? You can explain Rocky Cola to the listeners, but not propositions. I love you, Brian. Paul, where did you take a date or girlfriend in Glendale for dinner or on some sort of date? This presumes that I was taking girlfriends to dinner when I was living <laughs> in Glendale. But the Black Cow, probably, for a date, I probably would have gone to the Black Cow on Montrose. What dead rock and roll star would you like to see come back and play a concert? Oh, my gosh. Watch me name people that are not dead. Eddie Van Halen, I think, would be the one that's missed. He's dead, right? He is. Sadly. Sadly. Yeah. Superhero you'd like to be. Oh, my gosh. Well, there was a article that came out that attacked the work that I was doing before the commission and saying that I was kind of this, you know, evil genius map maker And that I was using this lobbyist who was an Asian going up and speaking about the Asian community, but she was really from Idaho, like as if that was kind of a slur. And that it was all being managed by a political consultant, Bill Wong, who was a leader in in the San Gabriel Valley kind of elected Asian scene. And so 
he created this political comic. And in the comic, I am the methodical map master and I've got a whole superhero <laughs> costume on. So you didn't know this when you asked the question, but right there, that's me. Paul, you've been a great guest. We really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Hopefully, if not before the election, after the election, we can do this one more time and, and go through things one way or another. I'd like to do it after the election anyways. After uh, the election, I will know the answers to all the races. I'll be able to predict everything. Yeah, and just just for the record, my guess is on various elections. I have a terrible record. I still think Hillary Clinton is going to become president among many the other. Vote. I, there was a point in time where I, I was almost convinced that if I donated money to a candidate, it was the kiss of death. It was like what I should have done. <laughs> my goal at that point was I should have picked the people I didn't want to get elected to and max out to them because there I was that go. certain that it had that kind of effect. Anyway, thank you. So you've been a great guest. Thank you very much. John. Cannot wait for Map Master 3, the threequel. The threequel. Great. We'll look Thanks, forward guys. to having you back, Paul. Thank you so much. Take care. Take care. Bye, guys. Thanks for listening to Cabot Talks. If you liked what you heard, give us a positive review, a thumbs up, a high five, whatever. Leave a comment, share, and subscribe. We're two brothers, two opinions, one California. Cabot Talks.